It's good to see everyone. Um, so uh, enjoyed our time together and uh, looking forward to this week and next week, my last week with you. I want us to look at uh, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, we'll look at a couple of passages, one in Matthew chapter chapter 4 and then one in Mark's gospel chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we've um, tried to emphasize and I've, I've tried to, first of all, just state uh, is that everything that Jesus does when he comes to this earth is caught up in his office as our Savior and Lord. Uh, he's not wasting any time. Everything he does and says had to be done and said in order for him to be our Savior. And the things he does and says before he goes to the cross uh, reveal to us different dimensions of what salvation actually is. Uh, what are the benefits of it? And so all of that is very important for us because then that illumines what the danger is that we were exposed to apart from Jesus Christ. And it also opens up to us the, the various parts of our gratitude to our Lord, why we worship Him and how we worship Him. And so let's look at, at this passage and just be um, reminded that uh, this is the first thing that Jesus did, is, is, is go into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights after his baptism. And his baptism is the inauguration of his earthly ministry, his public ministry. And so it's a crucial matter that this was the first thing that had to be done. And so we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, just following his baptism, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And some of your translations might say driven by the, by the Spirit. It's a very strong word. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 
12. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. The first thing that is, ought to strike us about what is happening here is that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity, leads or drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And so this is the reason that ought to strike us uh, in a certain way is because when we are asked to, when we ask Jesus, when the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer, which is a very short prayer, uh, but it's every word of it, of course, we should be riveted by because when Jesus taught his followers to pray, he gave them this prayer, and in it we pray, lead us not into temptation. Now we know that the scriptures teach that we should count it all joy, joy when various trials come upon us because God uses trials that, that come upon us of, of various kinds to sanctify us, to make us holy, to, strength, to strengthen us. And we're so grateful for that. But the trials that come upon us in life, that, that is a different thing than being tempted by the devil. Now we can also be tempted by the devil. But it's very clear that we are to pray to the Lord not, not to lead us into temptation. And so this highlights a difference between us and Jesus. One of the things that, one of the mistakes that can often be made in reading Scripture is in reading about Jesus is to imagine that everything Jesus says and does is meant to be imitated. And that's we can see why that mistake might be made because. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, it is to follow him. And it's also the case that there are many things that Jesus does that we are to imitate and that we, that where Jesus actually seeks to be a model for us. I've mentioned before that sometimes this is very explicit in, in the Bible. So that Jesus, at one point with his disciples, he uh, girds himself and washes the feet of his followers. And that was one of, the, one of the lowest forms of service that one could do. People at the lowest levels of society were asked to wash the feet of those who were above them. And it was, this was a major thing that went on all the time, of people having their feast, feet washed by servants. And so Jesus, by washing the feet of his followers, lowers himself and, of course, this is a major part of what's happening with the incarnation, generally speaking. And we see that, you know, most starkly, I guess, and boldly in the hymn of Philippians chapter 2, where we're taught that we should have this mind that Christ had, who did not count being equal with God a thing to be clung to, a, a, a right to be insisted upon. But instead, he, he took on the form of a servant and lowered himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And when Jesus, so when Jesus uh, girded himself and washed the fo his followers' feet, he was really kind of depicting 
in a, in a way, the, everything that he was doing when he came down, he was lowering himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on humanity. And he, after he'd washed their feet, then he said, if I, he said, you call me master and Lord, and you should because I am your master and Lord. And if I, who am your master and Lord, wash your feet, if I serve you in, in, in just utterly so that there's nothing so low, that there's no point so low that I will not stoop to in order to serve you, then how much more should you wash one another's feet? And so it, it just is the case that when we read the New Testament, we read about Jesus, it's right to be expecting and alert to uh, what Jesus says and does that is to be imitated by us. But it's also the case that the main reason he came to this earth was not to show us a model to live by. And that's true for many reasons. But one reason is, is that if, if Jesus came to mainly or only to show us a model on how to live, uh, that would not be a gospel. That would not be the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would be suggesting that salvation has always been by works. It's always been by doing good deeds. And, of course, that's always been a lie. Even in the Old Testament, what God expected of his children and the means by which we and his, his people always lay hold of the blessings that come from him and are able to have the right relationship with him it's never been by doing good deeds, as though our status before him could ever be secured by good deeds that we do. It's very clear, God, any good thing we do is something God put in us to do. He can never be impressed by anything we've done. He made us out of nothing. No, what God has always required of us is trust in him, and our trust in him is bound up with trusting in his word. And we trust him by trusting his word. And his word is full of all sorts of, of distinctive ways that he speaks to us. He speaks to us by making promises to us. And he teaches us how we ought to live. And he fulfills the promises that he, that he makes to us. It, but what has never been the case is that we could earn our status before him by doing good deeds that he's impressed with and then we could maintain our status as his child and therefore count on good things from him because we've done good deeds. That gets things backwards. We are always his children by pure grace, even in the Old Testament. Adam and Eve didn't earn their status before God as the children. That was bestowed upon them. The, the good deeds that they were to do as they served each other and were kind to each other and helped one another, they, those are to, they reflect that whose father they are. They reflect the character of the creator who made them. They don't earn any kind of status. Well, if we imagine that really what Jesus is doing is always showing us how to live and we're going to imitate that, it's again reinforcing that lie that salvation is by works and not by grace through faith. Jesus came to this earth mainly to do something that we can't do, shouldn't try to do, that has to be done for us. And when the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness, 
The reason the, the, the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the wilderness, but Jesus will tell us to pray, lead us not into temptation, is because we cannot stand up to the devil without the help of God. We're not fit to do so. And so we don't go out there and run to the devil. Now, we'll talk about some passages in a, in a while about our relationship to the devil and how God does arm us to deal with the devil. But it is Christ who comes as our great victor to go into the wilderness for us on our behalf. Two major dimensions of, of our salvation that the church has recognized as taught in Holy Scripture is one is the substitutionary element that Jesus comes and takes on humanity in order to take our place and do as a human being what we haven't done as a human being, and to do it on our behalf. He, where we are faithless, He is faithful. Where we forget God, He remembers for us on our behalf. Where we disobey, He obeys. Where we are weak because we... we uh, we wrongly and stupidly and blindly listen to the word of the devil and get caught up in his snare and drugged down into everything bad in life, Jesus has come and he's going to take on the devil. So that's another element of what Jesus does. Jesus comes as our victor. He's going to take on the enemies of the children of God. And those are sin, death, hell, and the devil. And so where we pray... Lead us not into temptation. And we should pray for one another. You know, shield them from the temptation of, of the devil. Keep us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, we pray. The Spirit drives Jesus out there. If he's going to be the Savior, he must go out into the desert to be tempted. And note that he goes out there for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is that the case? That 40 days and 40 nights recall the 40 years of wandering in the desert by the people of Israel in which they were not faithful to the Lord. Their punishment uh, after the deliverance by God of them from Egyptian slavery to take them to the promised land was that they wandered for 40 years. And this 40 days and 40 nights recalls that faithlessness, that forgetfulness, that lapse into idolatry, and that disobedience that the people of God, that's how they responded to the great blessing and merciful deliverance of them from Egyptian slavery. So now Jesus is coming, and where, his, where the people of God failed, he is going to be faithful in the face of that wandering and that temptation. And so the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He must defeat the devil. We cannot defeat the devil. Uh, and I'll, I'll just stop here and refer to these passages, particularly in Ephesians, where we're to take on the armor of God. And note that the armor of God that we're to take on, because we are in a spiritual battle, we do wrestle against principalities and powers. We are in a spiritual struggle. All of these weapons that we're given are all defensive weapons. We're to take on the helmet and the shield. And the only offensive weapon we, had, we have is the sword, which is the word. 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we're told. And the result of our taking on the armor and protection and the one offensive weapon of the sword against the devil is not that we defeat the devil, it's that we're able to stand, it says. We're able to stand in that day and not yield to idolatry and disobedience and fall under the power of the devil. But it's Jesus who defeats the devil for us. And so he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. And then the devil comes to him and he says, If you are the Son of God. And when Jesus goes into the desert, there are three temptations that he undergoes by the devil. And each one of them is is advanced by the devil with this question, if you are the Son of God. Now, I may have mentioned before that one of the burning questions in the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is kind of in in, in many ways, the, the writer kind of builds the Gospel of John around this question, the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And so now the devil is raising that question. And he's, in raising that question, he's really assuming and he's really declaring that he knows what the Son of God ought to be like. Do we know what the Son of God ought to be like? What does it take for us to be saved? And what does it take for us to follow Jesus Christ? What does it take for us to live faithfully as God's children and lay hold of all the benefits that come to the children of God? At the heart of it is humility. And what is that? What what kind of humility? It's humility about who God is, what He's like, how he ought to behave, what he ought to say, how he ought to treat us. Whenever we, our minds think this way, and we, our minds think this way very often, and we, today, if, if nothing else, I hope you will remember this. This is a question, this is a statement and a question that comes from the devil. If you are the Son of God, then... Have you ever thought that way? I have. If you love me, Lord, then. If you love my child, then. If you are truly loving and powerful, then why don't you? In fact, that kind of question, that with the devil, this question, if you are the Son of God, is being hurled at Jesus as a challenge. If you're the Son of God then you ought to do this. In the Scriptures, often the question is, comes from a position of anguish and anger and suffering. And the, those who believe in God the most cry out to Him. And we see it all throughout the Old Testament and maybe most poignantly in the Psalms because these are songs crafted for worship. And the question is, How long, Lord, will you let me suffer the way I am? Or the accusation, which comes closer to what the devil is doing. The the statement is hurled at God that 
that you have forgotten your covenant. You've forgotten to be merciful. Um, the, the, the classic uh, problem of evil is stated in a way that's similar to this. That if God is all-powerful, and He is all-knowing, and He is all-loving, then why is there such suffering in the world? That, that question makes sense to me. It seems like an inevitable question. But today I want us to reflect upon this fact that we're being taught in the Holy Scriptures today. That this is a question that derives from a kind of arrogance. It derives from a kind of imagination that we're in a position to put God on trial. As though we come to the Lord and we have some kind of approved definition of what God ought to be like that we know what the Son of God ought to do or not do. And as soon as we've done that, we know we're not really dealing with the real God. Because we're imagining that we know what God is. And if, if we are in the driver's seat on judging God, we've already put ourselves above God. Do you see that? Here's when we know that we're really dealing with the real God. It's when we come to Him and we realize we're not God. We were created by God. We're His creature. He is not just high above us. He is above all things. He is the creator of all things, the judge of all things. If there's any hope in this life and in this world, it will have to come from that God. And when we really deal with God, we don't come imagining that God is on trial by us. How ridiculous is that? What do we bring to the table? We can't even keep ourselves alive. We can't, make it, we can't keep ourselves from sinning. Okay, I'm going to go a week and not sin at all. You can't do it. We're weak. We're blind. We're, the, the gap between us and the Creator is so much greater than that between us and a child. How, where do we come off this pride that we have? Well, if you're God then, we know we're dealing with God. When we do what Job finally did after he'd suffered so much, God never answered Job as to why he had suffered so much. God never answered Job. But when Job finally stopped trying to call God to court and he got down on his face and said, I don't know anything, you know everything, God said, I approve of that. Because then he was really dealing with God. The devil, though, he presumes upon God and the Son of God and he hurls into his face as though he's the judge of what the Son of God ought to do. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I want to stop here. This is another ma a major thing that comes up in all of the, the, the temptations that the devil brings to Jesus. Is, it, is this matter, first of all, of putting God on trial and that the main way God demonstrates that He's really God, is he has to perform miracles. Uh, you know, he has to jump and skip like a circus monkey. He's, he's got to come down here and demonstrate to our satisfaction that he has great power and can do great miracles. And of course, our God does do that, doesn't he? I mean, when, when, when the devil says, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. Well, the Father who sent the Son 
is the father who provided manna to his children when they were in the desert and were hungry. He is the one that provided quail to them. So much quail, they never wanted any quail anymore. It was coming out of their nostrils. They had so much quail. We worship a God who does demonstrate that he is God, that he is loving, and that he cares for his people in miraculous ways. Just like the kind of miracle that the devil is saying that, that Jesus will do if he is really the Son of God. So there, there's a logic to the way the devil thinks and the way we think when we challenge God about what he ought to do. But note the difference. The devil, is um, he is insisting that he knows when God ought to do such a thing. And our God never, never, will be like a, have a chain that we can pull and cause him to jump and skip. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he tells us to ask him questions. I mean, the Lord's Prayer is all petitions. All of the, all of the, the Lord's Prayer, every line of it is asking God to do something. Even the first line, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is actually... The way it's written is it's saying, let your name be hallowed. We're asking him to do something. So it's not wrong to ask God for things. But what is wrong is to say, you're not who you say you are unless you do what I think you should do right now. And that's exactly what the devil does. But our God does care about bread. Our God invented eating. And I think we've taken full advantage of the eating down here in Alabama. I think we do a lot about eating. We care about eating. We talk about eating. We read books about cooking. We're into it. God invented that. He invented sex. He invented eating. He invented money. He invented all these things that we end up distorting and turning into a curse that ought to be just a blessing. And it's not wrong for Jesus to eat. And Jesus is going to eat. But now's not the time for eating. He is hungry. And he wants to eat in his humanity. He wants to eat. But the devil doesn't know when he's supposed to eat. And here, Jesus does. His teaching here is a model for us. Just because eating was invented by God, or sex was invented by God, working and making money was invented by God, having feasts and festivals or something that God initiates, Jesus would go to a festival and turn the water to wine, doesn't answer the question of what's appropriate at a given time. And right now, Jesus is doing work that supersedes his hunger. He puts aside his desire to eat, which is not evil and wrong. He puts it aside, not forever, but for a while, in order to do that which God has called him to do. And that is to withstand the temptation of the devil on our behalf. And that means that when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, and we, we are in Christ, so that we, like the Apostle Paul, can say that our longing 
is to be found in him not having a righteousness of our own. Well, what is that righteousness that's not our own? It's the righteousness that he's achieving right here. That he does not succumb to the devil. We succumb to the devil, but he doesn't succumb to the devil. But when we are, when we are baptized into Christ and by faith we are made one with him, then when God looks at us, he sees what Jesus did and not what we did. By his not succumbing to the devil. Uh, and Jesus responds by, with the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's why Jesus, among his titles that he gave himself, is that he is the bread that comes down from heaven. And so, how do we live? How do we stay alive? By bread? Yes. Yes, we need to eat to stay alive. That's good. But not only by bread. We stay alive according to the will and the word and the sustaining power of our God. And so, Jesus does not succumb. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands... They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And that's exactly what it says in Psalm 91. And it is recognized throughout the history of the church that Psalm 91 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. Now this is a very important move, shift in the uh, temptation of Jesus. The devil... In the first temptation, in all three of the temptations, he presumes to be the authority on what the Son of God ought to do. See, that's a lie. He does, he's not the authority on what Jesus, the Son of God should do. How do we know how the Son of God behaves and acts? By watching him, not by listening to the devil talk about it. But now the devil does something that is so sinister and it's so important for us. The devil employs the Word of God to tempt the Son of God. And he does the same thing to us. He uses the Word of God. In a church in Indiana, we had a woman who was on staff, and she was living with a man that she was not married to. And, of course, that was publicly known. And she had a staff position. You know, she, she was like the assistant uh, worship leader. And so I couldn't, I, I, someone told me that was true. I didn't know it was true. I hadn't been the pastor long. But when we came up to nominating people for positions, I said, is it true that, we'll say her name was Sherry since that was her name. Uh, is it true that she's living with a man that she's not uh, married to? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I said, well, are we okay with that? Even though I already knew we were in that time where everybody pats themselves on the back by confusing toleration of sin with forgiveness of sin. Do you realize those are different? We live in a culture where, where that's not, not generally the case. People think that, that forgiveness means treating sin like it's not sin. And that's not, not the case. What we're called for in scriptures is to repent of sin. And repent has at least two, maybe three dimensions in it. 
the first part of repentance is confessing that something is a sin, which is different from saying, well, everybody does that. Yeah, we know everybody does it. Everybody's eat up with sin. Okay, so you confess that this is sin. When you confess it's sin, you're saying, this is why Jesus had to die an excruciating death on the cross. See how different that is than nobody's perfect. That's another way the devil gets into our mind. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, well, that's news bulletin. Okay, news bulletin. Nobody's perfect. That is really profound. Let's just stop saying it. The Bible's not here to tell us we're not perfect. It's here to tell us that where's our sin put the spotless Lamb of God on the cross. That's how bad your sin is. How do I know that? Not because I know you and have followed you around and said, this is awful, this is really bad. It's because the Bible says so. The same Bible that says we're saved in Jesus Christ says this about, about us. So we confess our sin. Then repentance means we turn from our sin. We say that with God's help, we will not commit this sin again. And then we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's repentance. That's repentance. Tolerance of sin is we won't say or do anything about anybody's sin. And then we, will, then we will stupidly say that we're being wonderful and Jesus-like when, and we're being loving. That's what loving people do, is we just act like sin is not sin. What could be less loving than not to warn people about the behaviors that they're engaged in that put Jesus on the cross. Well, it's ridiculous. And so, the temptation is that we will not do... Oh, so, we, we had to have a meeting. We had to talk about this kind, kind of thing. And, of course, what did this person do? I said, well, when, when we have a meeting with Sherry, what we want Sherry to do is say, I'm so glad that you confronted me. That out of love, you've confronted me because this is very bad for me. It's dangerous for me. And I'm going to repent... That was one possibility. She would respond to it the way she should. The other possibility is what? She'd get mad about it, and she would quote Scripture. See, increasingly we live in a world where nobody really knows what's in the Bible. People don't read anymore. They don't know what's in the Bible. They basically they treat spiritual things the way they would a ball game. It's like, okay, I'm going to expose myself to this and see if I like it, see if it means something to me. And, you know, they're just judging it the way they would a steak at a steakhouse. They're not coming at it with, like, actual Bible knowledge and study and so forth. But it's funny. No matter how ignorant anybody is of the Bible, they always have some things that they have from the Bible. Like, um, cleanliness is next to godliness. Of course, that's not in the Bible. But people think it is, right? Or God helps those who help themselves. Also not in the Bible. But these people who don't know the Bible, they think that's in the Bible. Then they have this one passage that is in the Bible. They don't know anything else about the Bible. But they've got this in a holster. You know which one it is, don't you? Jesus said it on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not. Judge not, you see. Now these people couldn't pass an exam on the Bible that I could have passed when I was nine years old. But I said, now, when we confront her about this, what are the chances? How many of y'all think she's going to respond this way? Because we know we live in a culture where we're helped. We're, 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 we're applauded when we insist that we can have sex with anybody we want to anywhere because we love each other. The Bible's out the window. Okay? Oprah's deciding what's true and what's right. It's not the Bible. 
How many of you think she's going to respond that way? No hands went up. How many of you think she's going to get mad, she's going to leave the church, and it's a community of 1,600 people, and she's going to go around saying how judgmental we are? They all raise their hand, you see. So we had to have a little powwow and say, we have to agree, we have to do this regardless of whether that, that happens, you see. That's the difference. He took him up. He used the Word of God against Jesus. And he gets us to use the Word of God against Jesus too. He gets the Word of God to, to become a tool of the devil. Now, another thing is happening here. The Word of God that the devil uses against Jesus here is one that appeals, listen now, to the rights of the Son of God, to the Son of God's prerogatives, right? You know, a hymn came out of Psalm uh, 91 that he could have called down 10,000 angels. And it's true. That would have been his prerogative. See? The hymn of Philippians 2 says that we should have this mind in Christ who didn't count his deity, and we can just, instead of saying deity, say his, the prerogatives of his deity, the rights of his deity. He didn't count those something to be clung to, to be insisted upon all the time. But instead, he gave up some of the prerogatives of deity. Why? To save us, to save you and me. There's a sports show that I love, and one of the hosts of it, it's amazing when anything controversial comes up. Uh, he loves to, he thinks he's saying something profound. And I love this guy otherwise. But he, when anything controversial comes up, he'll say something like this. Well, I don't have any problem with that because that's their right to either do that or not do that. And it's like nobody's perfect. It's such a, it doesn't, so this is what we're paying for you. You're just going to respond that when anybody does something that is not against the law, or refrains from doing something that the law does not compel, that that's all you have to say about it. That's, that's, that's your response. Okay, Jesus could have not saved us, but he gave up the prerogatives of his rights and did something loving and gracious and merciful. I mean, there's no law against adultery, so I guess that's all I got. Well, it's not against the law. Did you hear what the Senate passed in New York State this week? It's not law in New York yet. But the Senate in New York, and, the, and people stood and applauded when this passed in the state of New York, that not only can a baby be aborted at any stage, but if the baby that was marked for abortion is born alive, they can be killed right then. That could become the law in the state of New York. So I guess this sports host, if they ask him about it, well, that's their right. You know, it's not against the law. Really, that's all you got? Yeah, he could have called the angels down. But we learn the kind of God we have, not when he does what he can by rights, but what he does according to his love and mercy. Let's not lower the bar in our own lives to what we do by rights. 
Love is, is, is the touchstone. Not what's anybody's right or prerogative. Jesus didn't seed the, the word of God turf to the devil. He came back with the word of God. He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that, that is a lesson for us. Now, we know there are other scriptures that say, test the Lord. What he says there is, see if I will not keep my promises to you. See if I will not be faithful. All right? That's the kind of test that we're always putting the Lord to. We're, we're, we're finding out if he's going to be faithful to us. But what is a sin and is a practice of the devil is to get in God's face and put him on trial and try to compel him to do what we want to satisfy us, and then we'll give him a check or a star in his crown if he satisfies us. And then the third one. The devil took him up to a very high mountain, and once again he lied. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all of these I will give you. See, that's the lie. They don't belong to him. The devil may at times think because of the rope God has given him that when he hasn't gotten to the end of his chain, like that dog in Foghorn Leghorn, I miss that cartoon big time. He imagines that he's in control. Oh yes, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's been given a lot of rope down here. But our Lord is the Lord of this world. Jesus is a king. The devil is trying to offer Jesus what he already has. And he's trying, really, what the devil is up to. What the devil wants more than anything else is for Jesus to abandon his saving mission. Because the devil wants to lie to us and then kill us. And that's what he wants to do. He wants Jesus to abandon his saving mission. And it's interesting. Once the temptation was over, the angels did come and minister to him. And it tells us that the devil left him until an opportune time. He'll be back, won't he? He'll be back. And he'll tempt Jesus in the garden. So that, the, that Jesus in his humanity will say, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, let it be so. If there's any way for us to accomplish our shared work of redemption of this world and salvation for sinners in any other way, let it pass. And Jesus will even have to believe that he's been forsaken by God so that he'll cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet not my will, but thine be done. We who follow Jesus... Let us be reminded today that Jesus didn't do only what he might have done according to his rights and prerogatives to save us. He's done what had to be done to make us safe. He's done what had to be done to justify what we've already sung today, that it is well with our soul. It is well with our soul, not because of anything we've ever done or could do. It's well with our soul because Jesus himself has done 
What we couldn't do for ourselves, only he could do it for us. And that includes undergoing successfully the temptation of the devil so that the devil can't get us. The great hymn of Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, declares it so well that if the right man were not on our side, our striving would be losing. But in Jesus Christ, one little word shall dispatch the devil. We can't defeat the devil. He's been defeated for us. And in Jesus Christ, we're safe from Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give You thanks for the great salvation that is ours.